What's up, Trey? Hey, how you doing? Good. Uh, nobody taking the bait on the 40 acres this week. Co- company line all the way through with players and Sark. This, I don't think you're going to get any bulletin board material or anything outlandish this week. What's the company line? We're just focused on taking care of our business. Take care. Will you focus what's on in front of us? You know, we got to focus on our preparation and Alabama's a great program and blah, blah, blah. I, I, I do think it's interesting though. Uh, I kind of like that from Sark. Anytime you get into a big game, I think about or in really what changed my opinion on this in terms of how coaches approach it. You remember the 2019 Texas Oklahoma game that Monday where Tom Herman almost like, I don't know, it it went like beyond arrogance. It was almost like the chest puffed out and like, yeah, like if he, he looked like he really just wanted to say, dude, we're going to punk Oklahoma and Lincoln Riley's going to be my bitch. And like that, that vibe kind of got given off and the players were like, saying a lot of the same stuff and we obviously know what happened when they played so you know maybe it is best just to, as much as it sucks for us we don't get the good sound bites we don't get the good quotes like just remember to just lay back just take it easy and don't don't say anything dumb don't say anything that's going to draw attention to yourself yeah i much prefer the steve sarkeesian style with the media than i do the uh the tom herman style with the media and you obviously can speak from a slightly different vantage point because you were at those pressers each and every week and are still obviously asking questions and just listening to other people ask questions and the flippant nature that Tom Herman would often provide answers. And Sark has a little bit of that, but Sark is uh, much more respectful with regards to giving a sort of thoughtfulness when he does provide answers to the questions that he actually does want to answer. Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting. Like you look at the four coaches I've covered, right, in my time on the beat. Like Matt Brown, nobody could – conduct the filibuster like Mac. Like he was the king of the filibuster. Like, all right. Um, he just gave me a five minute answer, but I don't think it actually answered the question that I asked. And then you got Charlie and Charlie would just not really elaborate on a whole lot unless you like, in other words, if you ask Charlie a question, you're going to get that answer. If you asked a very broad question, you're getting a very short answer. If you ask something very, very specific, then he'll elaborate on it. But that's just kind of how Charlie rolled. Not like you said, Tom, just, kind of never knew what guy you were going to get from one press conference next. And then Sark, I'll say this, Trey, he's boring in the best way possible. Yeah, you know, he can be boring, but I think if you ask him a question that gets him thinking, he will show a sort of earnestness. But I mentioned this on the show with BK a little bit earlier. He's also not afraid to bullshit with his answer either at times. Like, and some people may dispute this here, but just go watch the film and watch how the kid got up and was walking around on the sideline afterwards. Like he said, CJ Baxter had a rib injury from landing on the football on Saturday. The ball was on top of CJ Baxter when he landed as he was landing, landing right on that point on the shoulder. But I also don't blame him for doing that because he's trying to keep opposing defenses from targeting CJ Baxter's shoulder whenever he is. Hopefully he was back at practice today, but even if that's not, he was, he was back today. Yeah. Okay. So he's back at practice today. That's great. So hopefully, you know, when Alabama is going after him this weekend, they think it's something with the ribs and not something with the shoulder. So I don't fault him at all for bullshitting people at times with certain answers no and you know it's funny i'm sure in the course of us doing the show we'll get into some of the minutiae and, and for some people it might be a little too inside baseball but they cover the team and what coaches do as far as protocol goes i would rather a coach not say have a policy of not saying anything at all about injuries like don't say anything unless like you know a guy's out then 
make something up. Like we went down that road. Honestly, we went down that road with Matt Brown. I don't know if you remember, Trey. I don't know if you were back in the market yet or if you were elsewhere, but the 2011 game coming off the Texas Tech game, Joe Bergeron left that Texas Tech game late with some kind of upper leg injury. And Matt was just like, oh, yeah, it's a cramp. It's a cramp. It'll be fine. Well, it turns out Joe Bergeron had a pulled hamstring, and we didn't see him for a couple of weeks. So it's like, well, you know, if if you're not sure, just say we don't know yet. Like, don't say anything. So I don't know. That, that's that's neither here nor there. But yeah, I mean, uh, Sark is going to protect his guys. I think he made that pretty clear with the, the Xavier Worthy stuff. You know, when he, you know, he that's why he said he didn't bring it up during the season because he didn't want people targeting that hand. Uh, and you know, you can debate how how broke was the hand, how hurt was X, but. That's, that was Sark kind of being there for his guy. Like, look, I'm not going to let the opponent know he's got a bad hand so they can go target. Well, I think Quinn yours is another great example of that, Jeff. Quinn obviously struggled mightily in the second half of conference play last season, and Sark never wavered from Quinn being his guy, even when it felt like Hudson Card might be giving them a better chance to win another game or two during the season. And the hope now is that Quinn was able to really reflect on his regular season struggles after that final game ended, and they weren't taking part in the Big 12 championship and dedicated himself right then and there to the degree that we actually saw some of the results of that in the Alamo Bowl loss to Washington, but that has continued throughout this offseason now, and we'll obviously get into what Quinn did and did not do against Rice, but... He does look like a very different player in a lot of ways right now versus a season ago, even in the season opener, which was an up and down performance of him. But obviously that uh, that really nice first half he was having versus Alabama before he went down with the shoulder injury. Yeah. Uh, if you look at Quinn during the Rice game, you've got to – I think you kind of the, – the deep ball's the issue, right? Nobody had – I don't think anybody would tell you that the deep ball is not an issue. You know, they've got to hit, especially you go into Tuscaloosa, you've got to hit some of those shots. I mean, you can't count on, you know, eight, nine, you know, double-digit play drives to go score against Alabama to go put one in the end zone. I mean, you've got to have some quick strike drives. You've got to be able to get chunk yardage plays. Um, but that said, that doesn't mean that because he was 0 for 6 on, on passes of 20 yards or more down the field, that doesn't mean, you know, his performance was garbage. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean he's a bum. That doesn't mean you need to bring in the backup quarterback. That doesn't mean – uh, you know, oh, everything everybody thought about Quinn Ewers was wrong. And this guy's – no, like, it, it's an opener. Like, there's there's nothing funnier slash more annoying to me, Trey, than the overreaction and trying to draw wholesale conclusions coming out of the season opener. It's almost, it's almost on par with people that want to make wholesale conclusions about the spring game. <laughs> I think the Deshaun Hales experiment should have taught all of us, like, the spring game doesn't really mean anything. Like, you can – you can take maybe little kernels of things here and there that down the road in hindsight, you say, oh, yeah, I remember back then that was right. But it doesn't mean anything. I think that's the same thing with the opener. Like the good with Quinn was I thought in the RPO game, I thought he was really sharp when they ran the quick game. I thought he got the ball out of his hand real quick. And, and I, to me, some of that's on Sark, some of Quinn's issues. I think as a play caller, sometimes you need to help your quarterback out a little bit more. And I thought at times last year, I don't think Sark helped him out as much as he probably could uh, so I, I like those aspects of it. Uh, you know, other than the deep ball, and, and I think this is a bigger issue, and it, it's tough in the moment, and even going back and watching the film, because we don't know what the protections are. We don't know what the rules are. We don't know what the audible is. We don't know 
how much level let's say so the quarterback has so if a quarterback gives up a sack like well that was the left guard well maybe not maybe it was a blitz and a wide receiver missed a read or the quarterback didn't see it he's supposed to account for the unblocked defender so not necessarily it's part quinn part sark part part the offensive line their lack of adjustments in the first half trying to picking up the blitz were, were really problematic because i i guarantee you and you watch enough of the Middle Tennessee, I haven't watched the entire Middle Tennessee game uh, that Alabama played on Saturday. I know Kevin Steele's watching that rice tape thinking, yeah, we're going to run gut blitzes and we're going to run loops and twists and stunts. And if you were having communication issues in, you know, be, uh, largely because of the temperature, a half-dead stadium, good luck trying to communicate with what you're about to walk into on Saturday. Like, that's that's going to be hellacious. It's a scary proposition. Jeff, as far as the deep balls are concerned, it's a very simple solution to me. And based on the... Stop, stop calling them so much? Well, that, I mean, that's one. But in terms of Quinn actually being better on those deep balls, and it's so strange because I read you guys' insider reports at Horns 24-7 all offseason, and the consensus was that Quinn was doing a much better job of hitting passes down the field but I think he's just reverted to a bad habit, and that is trying to throw everything off of his back foot because he has such good arm strength. That was on display all last year, and it was on the display for the better part against Rice, too, where there were far too many times that he is not completely stepping into that deep throw, and as a result, the ball is hanging up there a little bit too long or ending up shorter from where his receiver would be a couple steps away from that defensive back and going in for an easy touchdown. Yeah, you know, I don't know how much work Quinn put in with a private coach in the offseason. I know in the past he's worked with Jeff Christensen, who's also Patrick Mahomes, private coach. I think Quinn needs to get him a really good private quarterback coach uh, because the st- that kind of stuff with the time you have in spring ball or even just the time that the coaches get with you in the summer, that's not enough time to put in work on it, to change your footwork. I mean, it's it's muscle memory, and we're – we're getting pretty granular here, but it's muscle memory. You've got to train certain muscles to be able to function certain ways. Uh, did you watch the quarterback series on Netflix, Trey? you watch any of that? I have not seen that yet, no. Yeah. If you watch uh, Bobby Stroop, who actually – I met Bobby Stroop uh, probably 12 years ago or so when he was just running his facility out in Tyler, and then he ends up getting Patrick Mahomes as a client, and now that's all he does. He moved to Kansas City. He just trains Patrick Mahomes. But if you watch, if you yeah, if you watch that series, you'll see Bobby. Everything they do has a purpose. It's all about functional movement and every every lift, every run, every stretch. It's all mimicking plyometrics, whatever it is. It's all mimicking footwork and lower body movements that he would make during the game. Uh, but you know, I think Quinn does need some of that. Here's my theory on Quinn, Trey. I, I don't know. I don't know if you've heard me talk about this or buy it or whatever. But here, here's where I'm at on Quinn. I think if you go back to his junior year at Southlake when he had the hernia surgery. Like, remember, that was the COVID year, so I don't think five days and six days. I think they started, like, late October, mm-hmm. late 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 to mid – or early to mid-October. And Quinn had that hernia surgery on Halloween. Well, he was back by, like, I think third, fourth round of the playoffs. And I think if you watch him, you watch some of that tape, like even that state championship game against Westlake, I think that's where you kind of go back to the root of it where he picked up some really bad habits. And you think about Quinn's 2020 – you had the COVID year, so he didn't get spring practice. He didn't get that one-on-one time with Riley Dodge because that he otherwise would have gotten. Uh, you know, you had that wonky summer where are we going to have a season or are we not? You know, how much work do you put in? Then he gets into it, and then he gets hurt. Then he has a surgery. Then he has to come back for it. 
the deep ball where he really underthrew A.D. Mitchell on Saturday, that's the kind of throws that he was making his junior year at Southlake, where it's like it, it's almost like no lower body movement at all. Mm-hmm. He's just twisting his hips and throwing it. I think that hernia surgery, I, I think that and the lack of consistent development he's had, like, yeah, he was at Ohio State for a semester, but what did he really get to do working with Ryan Day and that staff? You're running a scout team if you're the number four quarterback. So I just think that's one thing we need to be cognizant of with Quinn is it's the stunted development in terms of it hasn't been linear by any stretch. And I really think if you go back to that hernia surgery, I wouldn't be shocked if you could trace a lot of his mechanics issues back to that and just how just off kilter that whole deal was. I like that theory a lot. And that makes me wonder if that is also connected to just some of the bizarre footwork that we saw out of him on Saturday. It's strange. You don't see a guy typically lose 15 to 20 pounds and look a little bit less athletic, but there was at least one sack that I can remember. And I think there were a couple of them where Quinn kind of stumbled his way into a sack when he had an opportunity to evade the pressure. Now the pressure was there to begin with. So I'm certainly not giving a pass to the offensive line, but there were a couple of times where he just needed to shuffle a little bit and get rid of the football, but instead he ends up falling to the ground. And I wondered, you know, I think when you're a quarterback and you start seeing pressure, it's, it's human nature, right? You're going to get a, you're going to get happy feet. You get a little bit panicked. And I'm not saying that that's anything negative with Quinn, but I think the the good thing is Quinn Ewers last year, Trey, if he goes through that, he probably, if he recovers, it's not near what we saw those first three drives of the second half. He got in, he got to go in at halftime, got to reset, and you come out the second half, it's three straight drives, you know, to open the half three touchdowns. So they did start to move the ball a little bit better. You could tell he kind of settled in right there. And he even said after the game, he said, I, I just need to settle in early. But I don't know what you've got to do to make that happen before Saturday, but you're if you take too long to settle in you you could be down you know two three scores and be pushing that boulder up the hill real quick exactly and i know it's a different decision if you're playing alabama you're probably not going for it on fourth and one deep in your own end the very first drive of the game you lord i'd hope not probably need to punt there especially after you saw a lack of execution on a couple of fourth and short plays on saturday against rice but you're exactly right. They can't be missing on so many of those little things early on. Otherwise, it's going to be a bit of a snowball that just continues to grow as it goes downhill. And you're not going to be able to recover nearly as as nicely as you were against Rice because the competition is inferior. You're going to be facing competition that is better than you are in terms of top to bottom yeah. on that roster and also an exceptional coaching staff too that doesn't make a ton of mistakes. And when you make mistakes, they find ways to capitalize on them. Man, they're, whether you're talking about Lawson or Turner, I mean, you look at their pass rushers, this is by far the best group of pass rushers you're going to see all year. And they're, they're, they, they're good enough we saw this a little bit last year, and you see this anytime with the Nick Saban defense. They're good enough to just kind of play a static front and just get pressure organically. But they'll dial it up. And like I said, against Middle Tennessee, they were running, you know, they were crossing backers and running twists and stunts and gut blitzes and throwing all kinds of different stuff at Middle Tennessee. So you're, you're going to see it on Saturday, and you're it, it's going to be interesting win, lose, or draw just to monitor Quinn the entire night, Trey, and just see kind of those ebbs and flows, those peaks and valleys. How does he handle it? And how does he come out of this game? I feel like we're going to see very similar defensive game plans from Alabama and Texas in terms of allowing that front three to four 
to generate a sort of natural pressure at times to commit more to stopping the opposing passing attack. And that's not to say Texas isn't going to send extra guys here and there. And obviously when Anthony Hill is out there on obvious passing downs, he's not going to be dropping into coverage. He's going to be getting after Jalen Milrow. I was just talking with Wags and Zay about this, Jeff, when Texas chooses to spy Jalen Milrow, who do you think that guy is going to be more often than not on the Texas defense? It's got, it's got to be different guys. Yeah. I, think, I, I, I think if you look at, you know, if you look at the snap totals at the end of the game and who did it more often, I think it's got to be Jalen Ford. Yeah. But because, because Jalen Ford's built for a game like this, right? Like he's, he is your, in the year 2023, he is your prototype off the ball linebacker, right? You know, what is he? Six one, six two, two hundred and thirty pounds. Uh, can run sideline to sideline. Great ball skills. Can drop into coverage. So, and by the way, like we, I talked about a lot last year. Like Jalen, uh, Jalen Ford got knocked for his coverage skills last year. But let's give him some props on that coverage drop, and then also the hand-eye coordination to make that pick Saturday. Let's, yeah. let's give him some props. Uh, but it'll, I think it'll be Jalen Ford. I think it'll be Jade Barron at, at the nickel position. I think Jalen Catalan can definitely do some of that. He did some of that. You know, when you we look at three safety defense that he was part of with Barry and that Barry Odom ran at Arkansas, you know, that's kind of what that middle safety is. He's almost like a spy type player, you know, based on the way he's got to fit the run and read everything. Uh, so I think Catalan can do some of that. Uh, Jaron Thompson's got experience playing in the box. I think he could do some of that. I, it's got to be different guys. Trey. I, that old that old idea of, all right, this guy's our spy and he's going to spy the quarterback. That's a really good way to get yourself exposed and get yourself beat by any any power five offensive coordinator that's got half a brain. How much you do know, you trust? It's got to be different guys. How much do you trust David Benda to do that? I hope he didn't have to do it very often. And there, there are going to be times where he has to do it, but I hope it's not very often. That's just not his game. His game is is getting downhill and going C gap to C gap. That's what you want, and that's. You look at that that one that thirty six yarder that Rice ran uh, that pat that completion they had it was right behind him. I don't know what he was looking at in the backfield, but they just ran a crosser just got about four or five yards behind him, and you know J T Daniels threw it to grass and receiver catches it and gets a, almost a forty yard gain. So I hope I hope Bender doesn't have to do it a whole lot. This this trade this is one of those games. This is a game where you really miss Maurice Blackwell. Like yeah. you really you really wish you had Mo Blackwell. And as a Mo Blackwell truther and as the president of his fan club, I am very disappointed that you won't see him. Because w- when you have him on the field, you almost uh, – I've talked to Bucky and BK about this when the injury happened. You almost like – you're almost running like a big dime package with Blackwell on the field. He, he, he can function as a safety. And, like, you think about uh, that 2018 Texas defense. Uh, where B.J. Foster was in that joker position. That's almost kind of like how Mo Blackwell would function. He's almost like he's playing basically a linebacker depth, but you trust him. Look, if you got to run down the scene with a tight end, like I trust you to do it. We're not going to freak out. So this is this is really one of those games where you wish you had Mo Blackwell. To your point, he was 35 last year. I have no idea what number he is this year because these guys change numbers seemingly every year at this point. But the first time I saw him – you know, last year or two years ago, whenever he started to get playing time, I thought he was a safety at at first, to your point. And then I found out that yeah. he's actually a linebacker. So, yeah, and he in high school, you know, he played at Arlington Martin. He played that hybrid role. It's basically like that's what the the Tom Herman staff recruited him for was mm-hmm. to be a true legit hybrid guy. It's really weird. Like when you think about it, I don't, you know, I 
anytime I'm on these airwaves, I, I think or, or just doing anything speaking, I feel like I can turn it in, turn it into a Tom Herman bashing session. Which, <laughs> let's, face, let's face it, it's not that hard to do. But like you look at that last recruiting staff that the, that that Herman staff put together, that that crew that signed in December of 2020. You know, Mo Blackwell was in that class. Byron Murphy's in that class. Mm. Uh, Jatavian Sanders was in that class. I mean, you you've got some really good frontline players that have come out of that class, that 2021 class. You know, I have no issues with you uh, taking some shots at Tom Herman because Tom Herman would build up the slightest bit of goodwill, and it's almost like he went out of his way to completely destroy it within a week. That's why I have no issues with any shots that somebody wants to take about Tom Herman. I feel better about those shots than I do somebody taking shots at Charlie Strong, who was clearly in over his head. Credit to Charlie Strong, by the way. He didn't have an agent, so all that money was going to him. But Charlie Strong was way out of his element. Tom Herman was somebody seemingly in his element. I mean, you people on the Longhorn side saying that he was going to be the uh, he was going to be Nick Saban incarnate, which obviously wasn't the case. Guilty. Guilty. Look, there were a lot of people that felt that way, and he had some skins on the wall from Houston, but there were also some flaws that weren't being talked about, namely Tom Herman's own ego getting in the way at times. And Ooh, yeah. his last season here, he wasn't terrible. It's not like he he uh, coached his way into a firing, but unfortunately he had rubbed way too many people the wrong way by that point to where Texas was openly going after Urban Meyer before the season was even over with. How, how awkward was that? Like – I, I, I remember we. I remember in the midst of us reporting that. I think I was reading like maybe like our our insider at the time or whatever whatever we were calling it then. I'm reading like how deep you know the the back channel connections are going to Urban. I'm like, dude, I wonder what Tom Herman wakes up like. What he thinks when he wakes up every morning, knowing that like your boss is openly courting somebody, a guy that you really don't like, by the way, to take your job. Like yeah. that's. Yeah, that's but it's funny how like those last two coaching situations have worked out. They were exact opposites of each other. Like Tom Herman, he won games. It's not like he had a terrible record, but nobody stood on the table for him when it came time for someone to stand on the table. Everybody stood on the table for Charlie, but it's like, well, ah, dude, you lost to Kansas, so there's really nothing we can there's nothing we can do at this point for you. Speaking of guilty, I was guilty. I was one of those people like, we need to calm down here. Let Charlie finish the season before we make a final call. And I remember watching that Kansas loss with Kevin and Chad at the Lakeline Pluckers. And at the end of that game, because Kevin was obviously all over, this this is not going to work. We need to move on to the next guy. Now, at the end of that game, I was like, look, I need to be able to admit when I'm wrong. I'm wrong here. Sorry, Charlie. It's time for the next guy. That was that was one of the most awkward, maybe the most awkward post-game press conference I've ever been in because uh, anybody that's been to Memorial Stadium in Kansas, like literally, like you're if you're doing the press conference in a broom closet, like it's it's that it's that small, and uh, yeah, it just goes to show you how much the hateful eight cares about their facilities. But you're literally doing it in a broom closet, and I'm sitting like seriously like three feet from Charlie, and he's just looking down, and I was like, it's really weird sitting, you know in direct proximity to someone who just pretty much knows they just got fired. No matter what he does next week, he pretty much just got fired. Was that the post game where pretty much every player on the roster was crying, walking into the locker room because they knew that they had sealed their coach's fate? 
Yeah, that was the Charles and who like slammed his helmet on the ground. Uh, Puna Ford, I think, was throwing stuff. I forget, but yeah, it was. It, it, and one of the most awkward rushings of the field ever. Like Kansas, Kansas fans didn't know what to do. Like what? It's like the Ricky Bobby bit. Like, what do I do with my hands? I don't know. Like they had no idea what they were supposed to do. We haven't won a game. How do we rush the field? Yeah, well, not just that. I mean, I know you beat Texas, but you're beating a Texas team that's ultimately not going to qualify for a bowl game either. So congrats, guys. You're, I guess, not the worst team in the conference on that given day. Now, Kansas has gotten much better since then, so good for them. Um, before we get into uh, some of the hey, other Trey, I, was, I was about to make you, you mentioned bowl eligibility. I was about to make an Alamo Bowl joke, but I'm not ready to go there yet. Um, you know, one question that in this kind of mucked up, decade plus of texas athletics one i'm glad i've been able to answer one question i was asking myself like man if you're if your favorite college basketball team what would you rather have would you rather have them go to the ncaa tournament and be one and done or win the nit and now i very much know the answer to that is go to the ncaa tournament and be one and done because winning the nit doesn't do anything for you no, that's the loser's bracket tournament for the end of the year. If you weren't one of the 68 best teams in college basketball, I'm fine with the season being over at that point. But then again, yeah. we've also had to go through the embarrassment of Texas winning that tournament and some Yahoo on the there you go. Yeah, deciding yeah. to call it a national championship. So Did we you went print that? Did you print that out, by the way? What's that? that out? Did you print that out, the national championship deal? Uh, print it out. No, I'm trying to strike it from my memory, but every time the NIT comes up, I can't help but to think about it being one of the most glaring examples of Texas going full Aggie. That's bad. That's bad, dog. It's bad business. No, don't celebrate the NIT. So, as far as 37 to 10 goes, we talked about the offense regrouping in the locker room at halftime and looking much better in the third quarter. Which, by the way, speaking of progress, this was a terrible third quarter team last year, so that's something to yeah. think. Out. was there something you saw on offense in the first half that gave you cause for optimism i think the the way the backs were able to maximize runs you know you look at the missed tackles forced and yards after contact that that Bijan and rojo were able to generate uh that was a lot of that offensive line success last year or that all the real run game success because uh, i think we saw the byproduct of that in the bowl game which it wasn't it wasn't very good now some of that was on sart because I thought the run game in the bowl game just completely lacked imagination. It wasn't where it needed to be. But, you know, like it was a shame that C.J. Baxter got hurt when he did, Trey, because you look at that, that's exactly how you want a back to handle his own run, right? Like, you know, has a patience, presses the hole, and then boom, sees the cutback lane, sticks a foot in the ground and gets vertical and and rips off a 32-yard run. But I thought Jaden Blue ran really hard. And, and maximize runs. I thought Jonathan Brooks did the same. And even Keelan Robinson, I think he only had two touches, but one of them was the screen pass he took for 11 yards and got a first down. So I just like the way the backs maximize runs. Now, you're not going to have near the room to operate this Saturday that you did two days ago. Because no. We all know that. We all know that, right? But um, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by the progress that running back room is making. And then I think considering the year he had last year, especially the bowl game he had, the fact that we got out of that game without saying, dude, what the heck was that Xavier Worthy was doing? Like, why did he short? Why did he alligator arm that? Why, why, why did he look lost on that route? No, like he, he looked really assertive, caught the ball, looked certain of himself, you know, caught it with strong hands, got up the field. So 
that's a positive start. That's a positive start for a guy that didn't have a great year last year. So no, those I think those are positive takeaways, right? Yeah, and it's clear early on also that Xavier is going to continue to be Quinn Ewer's favorite target. Like that may change at some point during the year, but especially in the first half as Quinn was trying to get comfortable. I mean, he was going to Xavier Worthy on the first read pretty much every time, and Xavier had good stats as a result too. But but the other thing I like too, uh, and I don't know that I'm not disagree with you at all. If you look at Quinn's targets, whenever there's a big spot or they need like somebody that we we know this guy's going to do this the right way, you realize how much they go to Jordan Whittington in those spots? Like there were two plays in the game Saturday, Whittington's two long catches. It was right after they got a first down. And instead of tempo, and it's like, look, we want to take an intermediate shot. It's Jay Witt over the middle of the field. One, he got him down to the one-yard line. The other one, I think he got him inside the 10 or the 15. I think it was that drive that uh, Brooks dropped the ball, dropped the pass on the goal line, and they had to settle for the field goal. But right then, boom, big spot. You need to move the ball. You got some momentum. Go to Jordan Whittington because he's so dang reliable. Like, knock on wood. Now that we're not talking if he's going to be available every week, like, now we're seeing how reliable he is. We're seeing how good he is, how clutch he is. It was four targets in the game Saturday. Trey, four targets, four catches. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Yeah, I'd like, and, and if, I'd like to if, see that target number go up for the reasons yeah. you said. And if A.D. Mitchell would have blocked anybody on the one time they threw him a little quick hitch, they threw Whittington a quick hitch, his numbers would have looked a lot better than they did. Hmm. What did you think of A.D. Mitchell's performance? Obviously, he scores his first touchdown as a Longhorn. I think it's his third straight game with a touchdown going back to his final couple of games at Georgia last year uh, as advertised. Did you hear what he said after the game on the no. touchdown catch? He, he, he admitted, like, he's like, I didn't know what to do. So he just kind of ran the route he thought he was supposed to run, and Quinn put it on him, and, and that was good. But I think I think he was fighting the nerves a little bit. It's, hard, it's yeah. weird to say that for a guy that's been in two national championship games, but – I think he was fighting the nerves a little bit, but it was, it was, a, it was a solid start. It wasn't, you know, I'm not going to say A.D. Mitchell is, you know, second coming of Roy Williams right now, but it's it, it's a solid start. Solid start. Yeah, J.T. Sanders had a nice game too. Obviously, he has that long touchdown on that uh, that that quick little pass up the field that Sark loved running last year, by the way. And I think it was effective last year when they actually completed it. And uh, overall, not his best game by any means statistically, but uh, a solid start for J.T. Sanders too. And I think to the point that you were making with Jordan Whittington a few minutes ago, Texas has a bunch of different options for guys that they can rely on when they are at a high pressure moment in the game, when they need a big catch, when they need a big first down, when they need a big chunk of yardage. I mean, it's pick your poison as we were talking about throughout the off season. Yeah. Uh, that pass JT caught, that's, that's just the old pop pass. You remember Trey about probably 10 years ago, K-State was running the pop pass and everybody's like, Oh my gosh, the pop pass, like talking about it, like it's some re- you know revolutionary concept. I'm like, Dude, high schools have been running the pop pass for decades now. Like, it's not anything good. It's just if you call it at the right time, it's almost foolproof, right? Like, if you get a team that's a heavy blitz team and then you kind of lull them into that false sense of security, especially if you've got a guy like JT who can burn off on a defense, 
just dump it to him real quick and it's a catch and run touchdown. That was nice. Yes. Um, you know, the only negative on JT Sanders was it wasn't even really his fault. It was just you you alluded to it earlier. It's kind of that weird fourth and one call. Like it just I, I don't know even I, I couldn't even call it bad execution because I'm like it didn't didn't really like going for it in that situation. Uh didn't really like the call and the execution wasn't that great either. So it just you talk about something that just got set on fire from the word go. That was, I don't know what the heck that was. I didn't like that entire series. And I say series, it was four plays. I didn't like all four plays there. Like I understand throwing it on the first three downs. Like you're at a fourth and one situation, run the damn ball right there. Show that you can assert your will on a rice owls defensive line and defense that is seriously undersized when compared to your guys and they tried to get a little bit too cute right there, which yeah. Sark has a rep of that. I mean, just thinking about his time at Texas, he makes some questionable fourth down calls. I also, it also bothers me how the, the fake punt, the fake punt against Baylor his first year. Right. It, it also bothers me how he handles ends of halves too. I, I don't think that he deploys his timeouts correctly. Like we got to a minute in the first half of the game on Saturday and it was a second down and six, I want to say, or four maybe after they had just run the ball. So the clock is ticking and he hands the ball off again. And then he doesn't call timeout after that. It's like, we need to have a little bit more. Uh, we need to be a little bit more on top of things now and operating it's with urgency. You don't to be there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you go back to his first year. I think where I really noticed it was the Texas Tech game. What was that, 70 to 21 or whatever it was? And if you go back to the end of that first half, they're like, it's ticking down. I'm like, man, there's like 15 seconds left on the clock. And they end up calling an outside run for, for Rojo, and he ends up getting across. And I'm like, he got across with like four seconds left. I'm like, if he gets tackled in bounds, you're screwed right there. Like you, you end the half with no points. So yeah, Sark just cuts it uh, playing with fire and where it burned them. Trey was last year in the Alabama game. Remember? Cause they had another one of those into half possessions where I think I, I tracked, I, I'd have to go back and look. Cause I wrote about that possession specifically. I think they wasted like 48 seconds, 52 seconds of clock time, just getting lined up, getting to the line of scrimmage, whatever. And you ended up having to rush the field goal team on and Bert Auburn missed the field goal because the snap was bad. So just that's the kind of stuff that from Sark, I'm just like, at some point that catches up with you if you're not really buttoned up on that stuff. And and that's that's one of those things that, you know, hopefully with with Jody Camillus on staff, like Jody Camillus is supposed to be Sark's guy that helps him with that game management stuff. Now, like that's why he brought him in. So Jody Camillus, I didn't know this, did that for Sean McVay. Like we know – Hmm. Joe DeCamillis is a great special teams coordinator. But yeah, apparently he did that for Sean McVay, was kind of his clock management, game management guy. So hopefully, hopefully that changes in Tuscaloosa on Saturday because it's just, it makes you nervous, man. It just, you, you feel like, you know, dude, are they going to run out of time here? Like, and there's no reason for them to get to that point. Well, I like how you pointed out the Alabama game last year because that's a great example. And it's why some people may consider a, the criticism from the end of the first half against Rice is a bit of nitpicking. No, it's not nitpicking. What it is, it's pointing out something that will be exposed by a better football team if you allow it to happen. So hopefully DeCamillis' impact continues to uh, make that 
uh, or push that into more of a positive direction, I guess. Let's talk a little bit more about the defense from Saturday, Jeff, because as disappointing as the offense was in the first half, the defense was gangbusters. They were as advertised and maybe even then some, uh, according to the vantage point. But, man, that defensive line, I think there's no doubt at this point that it is the strength of the entire football team headlined by Tavondre Sweat. Sweat was sweat was really good. I was really disappointed for Byron Murphy because there was that sack where he pretty much dog-walked the right guard back into JT Daniels' lap and damn near tackled both of them. And it's like – uh, Dave Benda and Ethan Burke like split the sack. I'm like, Ethan Burke wasn't anywhere near the play, and Benda just came and cleaned up what, what Byron Murphy did. So I, I understand Byron Murphy. The box score will say otherwise, but Byron Murphy gets credit for that sack. But both those guys, and Alfred Collins knocked down the pass. Vernon Broughton actually ended up playing a lot in this game, and I think that was that was kind of the theme for me defensively, Trey. As you look at how many different guys play, like I keep getting asked. What, what was wrong with Jalen Catalan? Why didn't we see Catalan more? I'm like, you didn't see him more because you didn't need to. No. Right? Like, I think De- Derek Williams actually ended up getting the most snaps of anybody in that safety group, which is a good thing, right? Like, that's, that's a game where you can get your, your, you know, your young guys, your freshmen, some reps. Like, the fact that they got Leonga LaFau and Cecilia Connor and some other guys in the game was really good. Uh, but the, the secondary wasn't going to get tested against Rice. That was pretty obvious early on. And, and as Don – to win, if you can win as consistently and as violently up front as Texas looked like they could do on Saturday, you're going to keep yourself in it pretty much every game you play the rest of the way. That's one thing that you can plan on traveling is we got a really good D line that can really, you know, give it to people at the point of attack. I wasn't blown away by what Ethan Burke did on Saturday. Didn't necessarily need to be, though. I will say he looks a little bit top-heavy now. I know putting the right weight on him is going to be a, a continual off-season work in progress. Yeah. Uh, did you see uh, anything out of Ethan that uh, especially pleased you? A little bit. Kind of. There was one of the sacks he had where he kind of bends the corner a little bit, so that's encouraging to see a guy with a good edge. I'll tell you, and I don't. It, it may just be one game, and we may not hear from him the rest of the year. Uh, but maybe we look back and say, okay, we saw some of this in the opener. Chris Ross, I was not expecting anything from Chris Ross this year. Like nothing. I'll be honest. Like no disrespect if the Ross family's listening to this or watching this, but I, I didn't expect it from him. And, man, there was that either the first, I think it was maybe the first possession where, you know, he he gets Daniels off the spot and chases him out and you know forces him to make a bad throw. I'm like, dude, Chris Ross was not a bad little pass rush, so – just some of those guys that, you know, like the Chris Rosses of the world that you just saw something from, like, okay, I didn't know I was going to see that on Saturday. I like, I like that from Chris Ross. Sark said in his presser today that he felt like special teams was a bit up and down. What do you think the downs were? Dude, Will Stone kicking the freaking opening kick half of, kick off for the second half out of bounds. Yeah. <laughs> like, that – and I, I like Will Stone. I think he's a really good kicker, but that's the that's – the, you had one job. Yeah. The point of Saturday. You're the kickoff specialist. That's all, that's all kickoffs and long field goals. That's all you do. You had one job. Just keep the damn ball in bounds. Um, you know, Ryan Sanborn was solid. It was okay. I didn't think it was anything. It wasn't like, oh my God, this guy's the second coming of Michael Dixon, which still, still your all time like non award, non Heisman winning Longhorn, Trey. Who? My favorite? Like, M- Michael Dixon. Yeah. I mean, he won awards. He won. Is he still up there for you? Yeah, the the back. Oh, yeah, he's, he's top. Five, 
He's top 10 favorite Longhorns of all time for me. Top 10, okay. So I guess the way I feel about Casey Hampton is how you feel about Michael Dixon. Okay, Two diametrically opposed players we're talking about in the history of this program. Okay, just making sure I still got that. Casey um, Hampton, they were both All-Americans, right? Yeah, but like, okay, anybody that listens to Longhorn Blitz or, or reads me on the site knows that I'll harp on this. You go back and look at Casey Hampton's numbers his last year at Texas in 2000, he had 100 tackles and 20 tackles for loss as a nose tackle. Good Lord. Where he's getting like triple teamed every play, and the dude still had 100 tackles and 20 tackles for loss. That is insane. So I see see what you're saying. Yeah. If you know nothing else about Casey Hampton, like think about how much of a badass you have to be that when the Pittsburgh Steelers put together their all-time team for an anniversary – you're on the defensive line. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think about all the impressive things about Michael Dixon, and it's as simple as a couple of things. One is that he won the bowl game MVP, his last game as a Longhorn. And by the way, it wasn't like a joke. It was warranted. He yeah. should have gotten the MVP award. He is the reason why Texas won that Texas Bowl. But the other thing about him and I guess this is quantifiable because you can look at how many punts ended up inside the 10 yard line. It was like he was throwing passes off of his foot and hitting yeah. the gunner in stride beyond where the punt returner was supposed to stop to make a fair catch. That's how good he was. As he was aiming these balls like an exceptional rugby player, which he obviously has that rugby background in a way that I've never seen it done before. Now, I've actually seen a couple of other Aussie punters do that since then, but I still mm-hmm. feel like Michael Dixon did it the best, and he's, he'll, he's still proving so in the NFL, by the way. I'll tune into Seahawks games from time to time over these last few years, not because I care about the Seahawks, but because I want to see Michael Dixon uh, punt one or two before the day is done. You got, you got the special red zone package where it only shows punts. <laughs> that's right the inside 10 package is what they call it <laughs> yeah cb mentioned it in the chat uh the fact that josh thompson got was on an nfl roster last year and i know he just got cut by the titans he got waived with an injury settlement josh thompson owes a lot of him getting his foot in the door at the nfl to michael Dixon because he was such a good gunner as a freshman yeah, he was, and he was the recipient of a lot of those. It's like 500 balls where he's the only guy back there having to catch the ball. He was getting 500 yeah. every time. 500, 500, 500. God, Michael Dixon is so good. He's my he's a top five player for me. Now that we've talked about him a little bit more, it's just been uh, a for me to uh, get to express my man love, Jeff. Yeah, uh, that's that's what I'm here for, Trey. I'm here to make sure you get to to give Michael Dixon his props and whatnot. Uh, Casey Hampton's definitely top five for me. Michael Dixon, not so much, but Casey Hampton's in my top five. Yeah, I get that. Casey Hampton, certainly an all-timer. You mentioned for the Steelers, also for the Longhorns, too, obviously. All right, let's talk a little bit else about what happened in the Big 12 this weekend because it was disastrous for certain programs in the Big 12 this weekend, losing to competition that you had no business losing to. We can talk about TCU, Colorado, and yeah, TCU was heavy favorites in that game. Colorado had just an insane number of guys turned over on that roster. Yes, Deion Sanders is a head coach now, brings a certain level of excitement. But for TCU, I think this was the reality check that a lot of people needed with regards to where that program actually is versus them playing way over their heads and making it to the championship game last year. 
this could be this could be in 2023 what Texas Notre Dame was in 2016. We could be all excited about this week one game, like, oh my gosh, this was a great game and a great way to start the year. And then you look at the end like, oh, dude, these teams are like four and eight, five and seven type teams. I, I think that I mean, it's a great win for Colorado because that's probably one game that a lot of one, one win that a lot of people thought they weren't going to get. Like I saw people predicting like they're going to go one and 11 or two and 10 or whatever. Consider like, dude, I watched that car crash. that was the Matt rule, Nebraska team against Minnesota. Dude, Colorado can start out two and oh, real easy. So it's a great start for Colorado, but let's not pretend like, you know, either one of these teams is, is going to be in the playoff mix. I think that Texas Notre Dame game is a fantastic example to point to because you're right. And I think you and I were both on this back during Big 12 media days. I know TCU was getting love because they made it to the championship game last year, but having them in the top 25 is ridiculous when you consider that they lost eight guys to the NFL draft and yeah. most of their talent on offense, which was the good side of the ball last year. The TCU defense was opportunistic at times last season, but they sucked. They weren't the reason why, te- why TCU lost that championship game. It was a group effort for sure. But uh, they were a problem all season long, and it didn't look like that was going to be improving enough this year to make up for the defense the deficiencies that would exi- uh, that would start to crop up on offense with all of those guys no longer there. Uh, we'll watch Clemson tonight. I think TCU might end up missing Garrett Riley maybe a little bit more than we thought, or a little bit more than the public at large thought. Tiny bit. Yeah. And there's, yeah. Look, I don't want to go down this road, but – there's got to be a little part of you, Trey, or maybe a big part of you that's pretty happy to see Kendall Bryles be on the, the receiving end of that loss as the TCU offensive coordinator. Oh, is, is he with TCU now? Good Lord, man. Yeah, yeah. Guy moves around like a gypsy in college football. Yeah. When you talk about Tom Herman, like, burning his goodwill, like all the goodwill Sonny Dykes built up last year, I know a lot of TCU people that pretty much thought he incinerated it when he on spot when he hired Kendall Bryles. Yeah, there are a lot of people that don't like Kendall Bryles ending up on their staff, and understandably so in a lot of ways. He was obviously an instrumental part of that Baylor staff when Art Bryles, his dad, got fired. And uh, I look forward to seeing what Clemson and and Duke are able to do tonight. Duke overachieved in Mike Elko's first year last season. Clemson looks like they could be a college football playoff contender once again, but they have questions on their offensive line. As good as Kate Klubnick is, uh, they do have some talent on the outside and in the backfield too. But when your offensive line play is spotty, it makes everything else that much more difficult. Clemson is uh, Clemson. The last couple of years has been what Texas was turning into under Mac. Like you realize, like you realize not and, and Clemson. Look, they got better better defensive personnel than Texas had, and better personnel overall than Texas had at the end. But like just like when Colt McCoy left, and then you saw, okay, this dude covered up a lot of deficiencies in his program and with this offense. You're seeing like, yeah, Trevor Lawrence and, and Deshaun Watson, those guys covered up a lot of deficiencies. And the minute they didn't, it Clemson's like, it's not like even when they were winning championships, it's not like they were overwhelmingly good on the offensive line. It's not like they were churning out first, second round picks on the offensive line. And it's like once they no longer had a transcendent quarterback, you got really average, really fast. So that's, I mean, 
I don't know if either one of two things has to happen. Either their offensive line has to get a lot better or Kate Klubnick needs to uh, maybe unfairly take a massive step forward this year. I think Cade Klubnick is capable of that. But again, if your offensive line is average to below average, that's going to be a problem regardless of how good your quarterback is because he's not going to be Deshaun Watson. He's no, not, no. not going to be Trevor Lawrence either. So uh, you have to uh, to hope for the best with him in given games. Now, that Florida State game in a couple of weeks will be a big one, but this is a Ooh. huge moment for Clemson tonight to get, get the season going on the right foot against Duke on national TV with no other games going on. So all eyes are going to yeah. be on you. Can, can Cade Klubnick, can he be Taj Boyd if we're going down the Rolodex of Clemson quarterbacks in the past? Yes. Can he be Taj Boyd? Okay. Yes. Taj Boyd wasn't bad. Taj Boyd was okay. Yo, you're right about that, but I think I think that he can clear Taj Boyd. It's those other two guys that uh, they're obviously a problem, and each won a national championship for Clemson, so it's not like that's a, an insulting statement being made towards Cade. I, by all accounts, right. he is a great kid and has a ton of talent too. So we shall see. I mean, I'm rooting for him. I always like rooting for Austin kids at other schools too. My issue with Clemson is Dabo. Dabo started getting super sanctimonious a few years ago as NIL was very obviously about to get passed and making it seem like it was going to be the end of the sport. And I love that Mac Brown comparison too, because it fi- kind of felt like he started to turn into a bit of a fat cat too, where he started to, uh, yeah. to, to appreciate his own accomplishments a little bit too much versus continuing to grind as well as losing a couple of key coordinators too, in the process. That's yeah. I don't think we need to forget, like, that's how Dabo built the Clemson program. Right. Like, when, when he got that job, he came down to Austin and Mac let him around the facilities and let him see how they do things. And a lot of how Clemson was built under Dabo Swinney was based off of what Mac Brown did when Texas had it rolling. Yes, you Texas fans that are, are, are so young, you might not remember, there was a time where Texas had a football program that was consistently winning double-digit games year in and year out and competing for conference championships. Seems like it seems like so long ago. I just want one of those. <laughs> I don't hey, know. Decades hey, there, I just want there, one. There was they, they Texas did win a Sugar Bowl. They did beat Georgia in that Sugar Bowl. You're right. So, that was that was yeah. a double digit win season, and that that season felt good. Just think about the years where Texas was getting to double digit wins, and people were questioning if Mac Brown was the right guy for the job. Oh, I remember 2002 when they, I think they started number two in the country to start the year and they went 11 and two, lost a really tough game at tech where it seemed like half the defense got injured, mm-hmm. uh, lost a really tough game to Cliff Kingsbury in Lubbock. And then like, it was like, this is such a terrible year. And then dude, they went to the cotton bowl and other prior to last night with that Florida state game, Trey, that cotton bowl was the last time maybe that I saw an LSU team. And that was a Nick Saban coach LSU team that just got physically whooped the way Florida State whooped Clemson last night. You remember Roy Williams in that Cotton Bowl? Like, as good as it was, I'm like, dude, Roy Williams is going pro. There's no way he's coming back after that game. Because uh, the guy that was covering him most, that Corey Webster at LSU, Corey Webster was, like, projected to be a first-round corner, and he had a knee injury, ended up starting for the Giants when they won the Super Bowl. But, like, I was like, dude, Roy Williams was a man. It, it, looked, like, it looked like the senior going down to practice with the freshman team. Like, that's what Roy Williams looked like that day in the Cotton Bowl. And that was the last time I saw LSU get pushed around the way they did against Florida State. How much of that Florida State-LSU games you watch? 
I watched a good chunk of it. Yeah. Yeah. Florida State, I, this is like why you've got to kind of try to gauge things in an opener. Is Florida State's defensive line that good or is LSU's offensive line that bad? Boy, that's a great they, question. Because that's probably probably both, probably a little bit of both. That that's probably gonna be my answer because that Florida State defensive line looked freaking nasty. And early on in that game, BK and I talked about this a little bit earlier. I know technically they didn't win the game, the very first LSU drive on offense where they get all the way down inside the five and have six opportunities to punch it in. But that was a huge statement in that moment that ultimately helped vault the Seminoles to a victory. The fact that they stood strong right there and not only held it to a field goal, but gave up no points when they were able to come up with that fourth down sack too, that was massive. And I think it set the tone for that defense the rest of the way. I'm also not completely bought in on Daniels either. I know some people wanted to uh, to wonder if he was a dark horse Heisman candidate this year. I, I just I'm, I'm not a big enough believer in him as a passer right now. On top of something we just talked about with Clemson that you brought up right here, is that LSU offensive line any good? Because if they're not, it yeah. doesn't matter how good of a passer he is. He's going to be running for his life all game. That that looked like a group that when they got back to Baton Rouge was probably running stadiums. Oh, God, Brian Kelly. Was... We haven't seen purple-faced Brian Kelly in a while, Jeff. We get many more performances like that out of LSU, especially against SEC competition. Brian Kelly may suffer an aneurysm on the field this year. Dude, that was that was bad. I mean, that's – dude, they got – I mean, Florida State. Florida State just straight up punked them last night. Yeah. LSU is a program. They don't get punked. Like I said, they don't get punked very often. I mentioned that Cotton Bowl, and maybe you could find – one or two other games where they just straight up got whooped. And, and last night was one of them. You know, you, you talk about uh, Jaden Daniels, like maybe being a dark. Jaden Daniels isn't even the best quarterbacking Daniels in college football. No, he's not. Because when, because when Jalen is healthy at Kansas, Kansas suddenly is a very respectable football team. Boy, that's it's just, it's just he's not healthy right now. That win is uh, starting to become a big concern for Jayhawks fans because he didn't play their first game. Bean ends up getting the start for the Jayhawks. He played admirably. He was good for them last year when he stepped in for J- Daniels. I just hate the fact, though, that we're uh, the first game into the season and a tight back is keeping him out, even against an inferior opponent. Get him out there for a quarter and a half if you can, just to uh, to let him run around and face actual competition before the games start to matter a, a little bit more against seemingly decent competition. Who they play? Missouri State. I'll watch some of that game, but was it Missouri State that they were playing? Missouri State is who the yeah, that's who they played on Saturday. They won that game forty-eight to seventeen. Their next opponents, it's a Big Ten opponent. It's Illinois. That game is at home. It's on ESPN two. I'd like to think that Daniels is going to be playing for that one, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Is it going to be borderline erotic in Lawrence on Saturday with Brett Bielema coming to town? Oh, man, not only borderline erotic, he's going to be uh, holding horns down signs on the sideline throughout the entire game without meaning to do so. Oh, Brett Bielema. You know, the other that 2014 Texas Bowl, I ended up having to go cover the Under Armour game in Orlando that year because that was the whole Kyler Murray, Texas bit, right? Mm-hmm. So I ended, up going, I ended up going to Orlando, and the game was that night, and it was like, I don't remember, it was like an 8 o'clock start or something. And I was jet-lagged as hell. Now I'm on East Coast time. I was jet-lagged. I remember watching, like, the first couple drives and fell asleep in my hotel, woke up, and the game was over. And I've got, like, missed calls and stuff on my phone. And uh, 
I get somebody's like, I get a I call back. Trey Scott, I think, was our managing editor at that point. And I call him back. I go, dude, do you need me to write anything? He goes, don't worry about it. It's fine. Nobody's going to read it anyway. <laughs> On the yeah, it was it, it was bad. Yeah, the bowl game where uh, they had like negative seven yards rushing or whatever. That's a Sean Watson special, Trey. Oh, God. They had like 49 total yards or something. I forget what the, the exact numbers were. That was That was truly one of the worst Texas games I've ever watched. That was a game that I considered not watching just because I cared so little. It was a six and six Texas football team against Arkansas. You knew the Arkansas fans would want that game a whole lot more. Obviously, Bielema wanted it more with some of the uh, underhanded stuff that he was saying and doing surrounding that Longhorn hate. Yeah, that was a low point for this program and what has been nearly 15 years of low points since that that, national championship game appearance. That that rivalry, I got a taste of it when I went to Fayetteville two years ago when mm-hmm. whenever Texas played up there. And I, I kind of got this because my wife, my wife has family in Arkansas. So, you know, we go up there every now and then to visit. And I, I wear Texas gear and I just get like, you know, go to hell looks from people. Like if I'm, you know, running into like going to put gas in the car or whatever. And I'm like, dude, people in Texas, like Texas fans, I think by and large, like forgot the Arkansas rivalry existed. They did not forget in the natural state that that thing was a big deal. Like the hatred for Texas is strong when you get in the state of Arkansas. I'm sure you do this also. Every time Texas and Arkansas play, I get blue in the face trying to remind Longhorn fans, look, guys, I understand West Virginia is not a real rival. It's cute. They're a bunch (laughs) of moonshined up hillbillies. Texas Tech, and it's closer to a rivalry. Probably still not a rivalry, though, especially when that game is in Austin most years. You need to treat Arkansas like you treat Texas OU that first or second weekend of October every year because yeah. that is exactly how they feel about that game, despite the fact that it's been more than 20 years, gosh, nearly 30 years at this point since we've been conference foes. So buckle up. You're going to get an annual reminder in all likelihood once the SEC switches to that nine-game format because Arkansas is going to be coming for blood each and every year that you two teams play. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. I really hope, by the way, it's been over 30, Trey. Nine, that 91 football season was Arkansas's last year in the Southwest Conference. Wow. The 92, they were in the SEC. Uh, yeah, I I really hope. It's funny. Like, I hear everybody saying, and, and the, 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 the purists will say, like, oh, you know, conference realignment has destroyed all these rivalries, first of all. Don't don't blame don't blame us at large, the fans. Blame the incompetent leadership of some of these leagues for them disintegrating and falling apart. Yep. Second is, is anybody going to come out better than Texas at the end of the day? Because you're going to the SEC, like the biggest brand in college football, and and you got a chance to have Oklahoma, A and M, and Arkansas all on the football schedule again on an annual basis. Like if you're a Longhorn fan, you won, you won realignment. Take a bow. Congratulations. 
Yeah, I agree with that. So you're rekindling several rivalries right there, not just with the Longhorns, but also the Sooners in some of those old schools. And by the way, you're going to create new rivalries now too. And let's think back to when the Big 8 kind of went away or when the Big 8 folded into the Big 12. There were rivalries that were a bigger deal with the Big 8 that were less of a deal once they started playing as Big 12 teams. But a lot of that had to do with where that respective program was at the time. Like you just mentioned that Colorado and Nebraska are going to be playing this weekend. That used to be one of the biggest rivalries in college football. It's not right about, yeah, right about 30 years ago. Yeah. It's not as big of a deal as it would have been 35 years ago. Yeah. I remember like there was, you can look back at some of those, you know, 94, 95, maybe 93, like when Cordell Stewart and Rashawn Salam were in Colorado. When Colorado was like an NFL factory. Yeah. And, and Tom Tom Osborne had that thing rolling. That was a top, like a top five, top ten game every year. Like, you know, like you start, you know, you get back and they like we didn't have internet primitive days. Like you get Sports Illustrated, they would tell you like week by week, here's the big game of the week. Like, do Colorado, Nebraska, like that that's that's circle that one. I'm gonna have to watch that one. That was must see TV. That's another thing, Trey. Like, you can't convince like somebody like BK, right? Who who's as young as he is, like. I don't know if you could convince them, like, no, seriously, one time, at one time, Nebraska had the best football program in the country, and it wasn't even close. They were a machine. Yeah, they were that damn good, and they had a hell of a PED program going at that time, too. Allegedly, allegedly. Well, I'm not even going alleged. They've done some 30s for 30s on this. There were there were things running through that locker room. And look, I understand PEDs have been a part of sports for a long time. Nebraska, as they like to say, was doing it better than most. They were. You don't you don't go middling program to all of a sudden having the biggest baddest dudes at every position uh, across the field. And by the way, you're recruiting all over the place at a certain point too. And I mean Nebraska, they they were doing it better than everybody else was at that time, and they have some championships to show for it. Nobody took better advantage of Prop 48 either, like Nebraska did back when Prop 48 was a thing. What was that? That was when you you you. uh, you could take guys that were borderline or didn't quite make it academically and you could get them in. They were ineligible as a freshman, like Tony Rice in Notre Dame. Tony Rice was a prop 48 kid. Mm. So, and, and that was one of the big deals. When you go back and look at the division from Texas and Nebraska, like when they were setting the big 12 bylaws, Nebraska wanted, you know, to take prop 48 kids and the rest of the big 12 was like, no, not now that we get a do over on this. Like, no, you're not going to keep that advantage that you had by taking Prop 48 kids. We're going to make sure things are above board in this league. So on the, on the PED stuff, are you saying like those Omaha steaks had uh, had a little bit of extra juice in them? Is that what, you, is that what you're saying? Yeah, those Omaha steaks, uh, they didn't have the uh, the no no steroid nor ho- no, no hormone <laughs> bits on the packaging. That's exactly- hey, by the way, have you have you ever been to Omaha, Trey? Did you ever go up when, when Texas win the College World Series any of those years? Never for the College World Series. I drove through there and stayed the night when I was moving from Oregon to Chicago. So I didn't have some grand epiphany in Omaha. What are your thoughts? Drink up, by the way, since Trey just mentioned Chicago. Um, I didn't until, – until I went to Omaha, I didn't understand the concept of the Italian steakhouse. So, you, like, you go to Omaha, you go to an Italian steakhouse, and apparently, like, this is, like, kind of Omaha's deal, right? Like, I was like, why are there a lot of Italian places in Omaha? Like, like really good Italian places. Like, places like Augie would, like, make sure he went to this restaurant, you know, in Omaha. They had great, great food and great wine. Well, apparently, like, 
you know, a bunch of, you know, Italians apparently immigrated to Omaha. And, you know, back when things were getting built, you either had one or two jobs. You either helped build the railroad or you fed the people that were building the railroad. So mm. Italian immigrants, what are you making? You're making Italian food. So apparently that's how Omaha became like this Italian food you know, capital. I don't know, but that's where I learned about the Italian steakhouse. Like normally, like you get a steak, what are you thinking for a side, right? Like maybe some mashed potatoes or some green beans or whatever. They give you like a side of spaghetti. Mm. And I'm like, I'm a fat guy. I like it. A little unusual, unconventional, but okay, I can get down with this. I didn't know, I didn't know that was a thing. I love, I love the right amount of pasta with a good steak. That's a nice touch. You're right. That is a, an Italian steakhouse thing. And that is yeah. now you've been to yeah. Manhattan, Kansas before I've heard Manhattan. I think it was Craig way. used to talk about this. Manhattan has a decent little Italian scene there too. So I they do, but similar I'm, I'm, the, I'm, I'm one of the worst people to ask like where good spots are to eat on the road in the big 12. Because like like Manhattan's one of those trips. Like you don't stay in Manhattan. Yeah. Right? Like you, you got to stay in Kansas City and drive the two and a half or three hours. By the way, like that's why part of the reason why Manhattan has an airport because I, I was always told that was a Bill Snyder thing. Like, look, we've got to have an airport where we can fly kids into Manhattan because think about how many kids we lose. Yeah, we fly to Kansas City, then we're going to drive you three hours out to the middle of BFE, and oh, here's our campus. Um, but no, you gotta stay in Kansas. You gotta stay in Kansas City Drive. So, like, you know, in Manhattan, Manhattan, Stillwater, and Morgantown are the three places where I'm like, I can tell you where the Chick Fil A is, and that's pretty much it. Like, it's you know, leave the press box, get something real quick, and I'm I'm on my way back to the whatever major metro area I'm staying in to catch a flight the next morning. All right, let's let's power rank the shithole here. Manhattan, Morgantown, and Stillwater. What's the biggest to, uh, I guess, least shithole of the three? You know what? This might surprise people. I'm going to put Morgantown as the least. Wow. Yes. Morgantown, Morgantown is not a bad little college town. Okay. Let me say that. Um, I would probably go Manhattan second because I have not been – to their bar scene, but apparently they got a nice little bar scene in mm. Manhattan. I think I think Aggieville is what they call it. Uh, and then number one, I'm still water. Yeah, mm. sorry anybody listening in Payne County, Oklahoma. You're, you know, if the if the United States needed an enema, Stillwater might be where you stuck the hose. So it's it's pretty it's not <laughs> not great. It's not great. Are people still? suggesting that out-of-towners go to Eskimo Joe's? Is that still a place? I assume it is. It's still a place, but I haven't... Uh, Craig was telling me that there was some kind of barbecue place or a steakhouse, I think, in Stillwater that's that's pretty good. Eskimo Joe's has become... Eskimo Joe's is to Stillwater like what Olive Garden is to Times Square. <laughs> does, that, does, that make, does that make any sense? <laughs> It's kind of one of those deals. I'll tell you what, though. Like one year, uh, it was Craig, myself, Roger Wallace, and Rod Babers. We were staying in Oklahoma City for a, a Texas uh, Oklahoma State game, and Craig took me to Okarchi, Oklahoma, like out in the middle of nowhere. Dude, some of the best fried chicken. I'm not even talking about like the fried part. Like it was the best chicken meat I've ever had in my life. Like white chicken. Think about this, right? Like white meat chicken. Okay. That was that was the furthest thing from dry. Like it was juicy, it was good. So yeah, if you're ever in Okarchi, Oklahoma, Aishan's Bar, 
some really good chicken. Did you say it was uh, it was just fried chicken, grilled chicken? What was it? It was, it was fried chicken, but like the the breading wasn't overwhelming, mm. and uh, and it's like the the meat was really really good. Best best chicken meat I've ever had. So we talked a little bit about TCU's loss to Colorado. Pretty embarrassing. You were twenty point favorites in that game at home and you lose to a Colorado team that pretty much turned over their entire roster from a previous season. Maybe not as embarrassing as Texas tech losing at Wyoming, or maybe even worse Baylor losing. Yeah. Eat them up cats. That's what I'm talking about. Bobcats, my friend. Yeah. The fighting GJ Kenny's that was, you know, TCU, I think we kind of said with like we knew it was going to be a rough year, but you you rank them in the top twenty five, you vote for them reasonably high in a preseason media poll in the Big Twelve out of respect, right? You play for a national championship, you get the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Texas Tech, dude, if Joey McGuire had a field goal kicker, they don't lose that game, right? That's you know, they, Tech Tech will. If Texas Tech ends up beating Oregon this weekend, I'm not going to be shocked. Like. Texas Tech's a better football team than what they played on Saturday. And I, I think in some ways, T- TCU, you know, I think we'll find out they've got issues, but I, I thought they were going to be a 6-7 win team anyway, and that's probably what they are. Baylor just looked flat terrible. Yeah. They look slow. They look small. Uh, now they've got Blake Shapins out for two to three weeks. Yep. Like, I really thought, Trey, they were going to have to Byron Leftwich that dude. Like, you remember that game where Byron Leftwich had, like, a leg injury and his linemen are carrying him in the line of scrimmage? I seriously thought that's what they were going to have to do with Blake Shapin on Saturday. And their backup, Sawyer Robertson, was so bad that they just – they made the conscious decision. You know what? Blake Shapin on one leg is better than our healthy backup quarterback on two legs. So we're going to go with him until we can anymore. Like, they – I like Dave Aranda, but – what I was worried that would happen to him looks like it's happening. All those guys, Matt Rule and that staff recruited and evaluated, all those guys are out of the program now. Yeah. So now it's your, it's your recruits. It's your development program. Now what do you do when it's your guys? And I think we're seeing the results, and the results aren't that good. Yeah, Sawyer Robertson is a transfer from Mississippi State. And as you said, Blake Shapin was trying to argue his way back into the game and Dave Aranda – who is a really bright dude, uh, an enjoyable conversation if you ever get the chance, was thinking bigger picture here. And even though uh, loss to Texas State doesn't feel good, he's like, look, you messed up your MCL. You're going to be out for two to three weeks. You just need to stay out of the game right now. Like It's not worth it for me to lose you for the entirety of the season because you are so hard-headed about getting back in right now. And it's been one of my biggest criticisms of Blake shape and like on the one hand, he's a gamer on the other hand, he has a little bit too much Charlie Brewer in him to where he puts his body at risk far too often unnecessarily that leads to him having to miss time as a result. And I didn't see what the knee injury was. It may have been something that was fairly fluke versus running head first into a brick wall. But by the same token, if, if Blake shape can't stay on the field, it greatly reduces the potential win total for Baylor this year. You remember, like, back in the day, Trey, when somebody would have uh, – Did you, you watched some of that game, right? That, that Baylor-Texas that Baylor State game. Did you watch any of it? I, 
pieces. I did. I do not. I'm not going to say that I saw big chunks okay. of it. I saw bits and pieces and I watched highlights too. All right. So you, you remember back in the day when somebody would have like a meniscus cleanup or like some kind of knee surgery, they would wear like the big white knee brace that like went from like mid thigh, like all the way down to their shin. Yeah. That's what, Blake, that's what Blake Shapin was playing with in the second half. It was almost like an immobilizer cast looking thing. Like he had a little bit of knee bend, but it was like, it's almost like his leg was immobilized. Oh, like did, was, did he actually come back? In, did he actually come back in the game with that thing on? Yeah, yeah. Wow. He was playing with that thing on, and then you know, Dave Aranda ended up doing what uh, what Rocky probably should have done for Apollo Creed and Rocky Four. He threw the towel. He was like, "You're done. We're not. We're not going to do this anymore." Um, which is, it's admirable to Dave Aranda. Like, look, he's probably my best chance to win this football game, but I'll take a loss if it means this dude has literally has a leg to stand on at the end of the night. So, but dude, they're. Baylor and, and oh, by the way, they got Utah coming in this week. So, good luck with that. Well, Utah, and then two weeks after that, it's Texas at home. Which, if you don't have Blake Shapen for that game, you're staring down a one and three start. I don't even know who that yeah. third opponent is, but assuming that it's a cupcake, that's a pretty brutal two out of four games. When you take into account the loss to Texas State, that's a rough way for Dave Aranda to begin year three. Yeah, it's and watching that game, like I'm telling you, Trey, like if you if you just took away the logos, right, you didn't know anything about either of these teams, you would have come away saying, yeah, Texas State was a better football team. It's not that wasn't like a fluky loss. Like they just they won one on one battles. They were tougher. They were more physical. Uh, they they looked just as athletic, if not more athletic than Baylor. I'm telling you, like. I figured it might be a rough year for Baylor. It's, I don't, and I know I'm, I might be overreacting to an opener, which I just told people earlier in the show not to do, but dude, <laughs> it's that if you're a Baylor fan, there is no way you should feel optimistic about the rest of the year, especially if you're going to miss your starting quarterback for up to four weeks. We talked about this with Colorado, but your Texas State Bobcats with Kenny now at the helm, they had some pretty serious roster turnover too, and that included bringing T.J. Finley in, the former highly rated quarterback recruit out of Louisiana, started at LSU, spent a couple of years at Auburn, and now he finds his way to San Marcos. Does he feel like the real deal for you guys And what I'm guessing is his final year of eligibility? Yeah, it's interesting, like, you know, the what GJ has done with him, if, if you just look at what they did against Baylor, it was simple read stuff, a, a lot of vertical stuff on the outside. Uh, using his size, they run some quarterback counters and quarterback leads and, and, and you know, let him run the football. Uh, that, that's something that impressed me, period, was just how they, I, don't, I don't know what they finished rushing yardage wise, but the, the way they were able to run the football was really impressive. I, I'm, I'm telling you, Trey, like I haven't been this optimistic about Texas State football probably in about 20 years. Like seriously, like when David ba- when David Bailiff got there in two thousand four, like that was the last time I was this optimistic about where this program is headed. So they've they got a chance now. Could they go down to the Alamo Dome this weekend and get curb stomped by UTSA? Maybe that's a really good UTSA team. But this that's that's about as good a win as that program has ever had going up to Waco and beating Baylor. UTSA, a team that a lot of people thought would go to Houston and win that game. But, hey, credit the Cougs. Donovan Smith, former Texas Tech quarterback, now with the Cougars, the fighting Big 12 Phil Collinses. They figure out a way to win game one, 17-14. to 14. 
And I hate to admit this, Jeff, but I did find myself rooting for the Cougars because of those sweet-ass Houston Oilers-esque uniforms that they were wearing on Saturday. Yeah, man. Because uh, you're you're an Oilers fan, right? Old school Oilers fan. Now I'm just an NFL bastard who roots for Longhorns and my fantasy guys, and that's about it. And my my brother, my younger brother, is a, a he, like he's the kind of Oilers fan that like the NFL to him did not exist from the time the Oilers left Houston until the Texans became a franchise. That's hmm. how that's how hardcore of an Oilers fan he is. Uh, so yeah, the Columbia Blues were nice, but that's I, I kind of hope they keep that game going, UTSA and U of H, because that's been a, that's been a nice little. Nice little rivalry they've got going. It's been a good competitive game. And, I mean, as long as Jeff Trailer's at UTSA, they will play anybody, anytime, anywhere. I, I really dig that about that program. And I don't expect Jeff Trailer to be there much longer for whatever it's worth. This has got to be one of his last years there, right? I know that the word on the street has been that he's holding out for the right job. And according to many, that right job is A&M. Who knows how much longer Jimbo is going to be in the station, but – uh, I feel like somebody is going to come in and make it very difficult to say no for him leaving UTSA for another gig in the state or even out of state. I, I think if you're a Texas fan, a hire that should legitimately concern you because starting next year, they're a conference opponent again, is Jeff Trailer at Texas A&M. Yeah. That should legitimately concern you about not just the caliber of kid they can get now, but the way – he and that staff evaluate and identify kids. Jeff Trailer, just with the way he runs a program, could fix a lot of the stuff that's been wrong with AM football for a long time now. Well, and much like with Joey McGuire in Lubbock, he was in the Texas high school football coaching ranks for so long and is an exceptional relationships guy. For that sure. you know, he is going to turn that turn that recruiting machine full throttle if he gets someplace like College Station too. I mean, he was able to get kids, you know, he was able to get kids to go to Arkansas. I mean, that that roster that Sam Pittman won nine games with two years ago, like Jeff Trailer recruited a lot of those kids. So, yeah, recruiting and talent development and, and just evaluations, that's not anything I worry about with a Jeff Trailer team. So, yeah, if he got A&M, that's – Texas, man, I, you, don't, you, don't, you don't want to think about that. That's, that's not – it's not, and not to, not that you should worry in terms of, oh, is Sark going to, would Sark stop getting kids at that point? No, because if Texas is winning, and even when Texas doesn't win, we've still seen them get their fair share of difference makers in the state, but A&M would get a, a larger chunk of them if, if Jeff Trevor was there. And I, I think could run a really good program in College Station. Is there much to take away from Kansas State and Oklahoma, both winning in blowout fashion over really bad opponents? Dude, what the hell happened to Arkansas State? Like, at one time, in, in that G5 level, like, they were a respectable program. Like, you think about the lineage of coaches they had, right? Like, they, I think they went from Hugh Freeze to Gus Malzahn to Brian Harson to – was Blake Anderson, I think, after that. And, and like, Butch Jones gets their trade. Like, they're, like, 5-23 and 23 <laughs> under Butch Jones. Like, dude, they, they're – I don't know, man. It's – I don't know what happened over in Jonesboro, Arkansas, but no, I don't. I don't take much from that. That that was that was Oklahoma with nine months, you know, eight full months of being pissed off at the world for how their season ended, and Arkansas State just happened to be the poor saps that they got it taken out. I'm gonna tell you what though, 
Man, Jackson Arnold going 11 for 11. I don't, I don't care if you're going against air. That's impressive, man. And that's, I, I, I do wonder, like, they're, they're not going to play anybody in the non-conference. Like, I think SMU is their primary non-conference game because they were supposed to play Georgia non-conference this year, but they had to deal with the SEC where they moved off that. I think they're going to play Georgia early on in their SEC tenure. Uh, but there's nobody that's really going to push. You got Oklahoma schedule in front of you, Trey? Yeah, I'm looking at they, it right here. Yeah. Well, run it, run it down for me until they get to Texas, until the Red River game. I know Cincinnati won big this last weekend, but it looks like five not very good, excuse me, yeah, five not very good opponents until they get to Texas on October 7th. Arkansas State, we know the result of that one. SMU at home next weekend, at Tulsa, at Cincy, Iowa State at home. And by the way, don't let the fact that Iowa State won that game fool you. They are terrible on offense. They'll be decent defensively like they always are with uh, Matt Campbell as their head coach, but they are not good. And that Iowa State game is the week before they play Texas. Yeah, they'll, they'll be 5-0 and going into Red River. But it'll be the kind of 5-0 and where I don't know that you'll know that much about them. Like, think Oklahoma did this last year, too. Remember when they went to Lincoln and beat the brakes off Nebraska? It was like, oh, my gosh, Oklahoma might be the number one team in the country. No, Nebraska just sucked really bad. And then Oklahoma, once they lost Dylan Gabriel, was not a very good football team. I mean, yeah, it's horrendous on defense. Take this for what you will, but Butch Jones said after the game that that's the one of the fastest teams he's ever faced, fastest, most athletic teams he's ever faced. I guess that's what you're supposed to say when you yeah. get beat 70-something to nothing by an opponent. Butch Jones strikes me as one of those coaches that, like, if I knew him, like, I wouldn't trust him if his tongue was notarized. Like, I just look at him and I'm like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know you, but you look like a shady guy. He, uh, yeah, he definitely has that feel about him. Is there anything else from the Big 12 that you want to talk about? West Virginia loses to Penn State. That game was never really all that close. Neil Brown, Neil Brown still have a job as of right now? I mean, he's got to have the hottest seat in the conference right now, correct? Oh, yeah, no question. He looked like a guy, and you tell me if you felt this way also because we were both at Big 12 media days. He looked like a guy who was resigned to losing his job at some point this season. You know, uh, it's one of the. It's been voted like and rated one of the worst movies ever. Have you ever seen Freddie Got Fingered, Trey? Because there's a scene in that movie that applies to what Neil Brown's going through. Tom Green, you what, sick. yeah. You remember when Tom Green he's working in the sandwich shop and the guy's like, "Yeah, there's no cheese on this cheese sandwich," and he just starts dumping like Tom Green starts dumping piles of cheese on the sandwich. He goes, "Why, if word if word of that were to get out, I could lose my job. I could lose all of this." That that's Neil Brown, in 2023 <laughs> coach in West Virginia. He started as he started as media day presser with like the worst attempt at a joke. I don't even remember what the joke was. I just remember watching with my mouth agape, like, "Oh my god, you are in serious." Do not give a frick mode right now, Neil yeah. Brown. Because he's getting he's getting paid. Neil Brown's gonna get paid whether he wins this year or not. He knows he's dead. Coach Walken. I thought he was a better coach than what he's shown in Morgantown. I really liked him. What was that previous stop? Troy, maybe? Troy, yeah. They were they were good. They were competitive. He was a little bit innovative offensively, and he's been none of that at West Virginia. Quick update from the Alabama side of things with us shifting very quickly over the next day or so to focusing on what to expect with Texas and Alabama. Nick Saban met with the media earlier today, and it looks like they're not exactly healthy and they're secondary right now, which obviously could bode well for that Longhorn passing attack. Saban said that both Malachi Moore and Jalen Key, 
who were starters on Saturday are questionable for the Texas uh, Texas game right now with injuries. Now Moore was a preseason All SEC pick, and mm-hmm. Key is a transfer from UAB who was honorable mention All Conference USA last year. So something to keep an eye on. If they are missing starters from that secondary, then uh, that's perhaps an opportunity for Steve Sarkeesian and company to pounce. Yeah, uh, Bama kind of ran. They kind of rotated their safeties a little bit last year. They, they basically last year had kind of what Texas has this year, where you would consider Jaron Thompson, Keaton Crawford, and Jalen Callan all starters. Kind of that same deal last year with Malachi Moore, uh, DeMarco Helms, and Jordan Battle. And then and Moore Moore's played some nickel too, so he can spin down in the slot. Uh, he's a good player. He's a good player. And I know uh, he's the, the the UAB transfer. Um, I know UAB was pretty upset to lose him, but that was one that I, I heard Trent Dilfer say, look, I'm the, if a kid's going to better himself, I'm not going to fault the kid for going to Alabama. You want a chance to go play in the NFL and you know, go play for Nick Saban and get there. So, yeah, that's been, and, and, Trey, that was an Alabama secondary that wasn't very good last year. And I, I do nice. wonder – yeah, I do wonder – part of me wonders looking at that game, you know, with Nick Saban and Kevin Steele, did they try to mix it up and, like – try to confuse Quinn Ewers, give him some different looks, throw some different shells at him, or are they just going to kind of do what, what Nick Saban's always done and just basically play their man coverage and, hey, you kind of what you see is what you get and here's where, where we are and we just think ours are better than yours and we're going to go try to win this football game. I don't know because that's what Alabama did last year. And like we keep talking about, if Quinn Ewers plays another three quarters, who knows how that thing turns out. Yeah, I think Texas probably wins that game. God, I do not want to see another year where a Texas quarterback is playing well but then gets hurt, and we have to watch. I know the national championship game wasn't as close, but it was still a game within the Longhorns' reach into the fourth quarter. I don't want to see another game where it would be Quinn Ewers goes down with an injury after looking good early on and then Alabama scraping out a win. And Malik, Malik Murphy has to come off the bench or something. What do you think of Malik Murphy right now after getting to see him in second half action on Saturday, kind of the same stuff I've I've seen when the, the little bits of practice I've gotten to see. Yeah, he will. I mean, I know I know this got said on the broadcast. He's listed as six five two thirty eight. It's probably close to like six six plus and two fifty. Like he is a massive human being. Kind of reminds me of Vince Young from that standpoint. Like Vy was listed at like six five two ten. I'm like, Dude, you look more like you're six seven and like close to like two thirty two forty. Like. <laughs> you're, you're 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 bigger the rare guy that's bigger than what he's listed at um but he, man trey he'll rip off one of those throws that just like the like the the slant that he hits isaiah nayer like dude you're 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 throwing that through plate glass windows son it's still getting there like it's that is a hellaciously strong arm i'm surprised probably probably the strongest arm texas has had since chris sims hmm I like that comp. Now, I'm surprised we didn't see a little bit more of Nayor or Jonte Cook with the first-team offense. That goes back to Sark's wide receiver rotations. I've written a lot about this and talked a lot about it. You look at the target share that his top guys get, and usually, like in Alabama, Alabama 2019 was a little bit different because you had four first-round wide receivers, right? So Jerry Judy, I think, was a little over 100 targets, but there wasn't that big of a drop-off to, like, Devontae Smith, and then Henry Ruggs yeah. and, and Jalen Waddle. You go to 2020, the, the year they won the national championship, I think Devontae Smith had something like 145, 150 targets that year. 
And then like the next closest receiver, John Mechie was like in the seventies. Mm. And it's just a precipitous drop after that. So usually his top three guys are going to eat up, you know, 85, 90% of the targets. And to me, that was going to be one of the interesting things to watch with this team is okay. You know who the top three are. Ken Nair or Jonte Cook, I think those are the two next guys in line. Can they get themselves in that mix where Sark is like, I got to get this guy two through targets a game or whatever it is. We talk about Jordan Whittington. You only got Jordan Whittington four targets. And, and that's another thing with these clock rules. I know Chip Kelly had the, the one-liner to ESPN at halftime, but that's another thing with these clock rules, man. Like these, it's weird. The halves are going by quicker, but the games are taking just as long. Yeah. Like the, the TV timeouts do seem longer. Like it's just, it's really weird. Like, you're, it was completely counterproductive what you did. Still, I mean, Texas ran 75 plays in that game. So, still, they're still in that that neighborhood of where you want to be play-wise. Play there were a couple of returns to action in last night's game where they were coming back from commercial break and the ball was being snapped within, like, three to five seconds. Like, they've got to figure that out a little bit better. You need to put a tiny bit of breathing room in between the end of the commercial break and the start of the game action. Was it like the 2022 Texas spring game on LHN where, like, in the middle of plays, they would cut and go to commercial? Not quite that bad, thankfully, but that's because ESPN, I guess, the mothership cares a little bit more than a fledgling LHN does at this point. You know, I don't, I don't have ESPN right now. Oh, man. I'm, I'm, one, of the, I'm one of the unfortunate yeah. Spectrum subscribers. What a mess. Whose fault is that? Spectrums or ESPNs, or is that both of their faults? I don't know. Just get it fixed. I don't care whose fault it is. I guess. I mean, at CBS, I'm not going to. I'm not going to Tuscaloosa on Saturday. If this thing doesn't get resolved in the next couple of days, I was telling my wife about this. I'm like, hey, we may need to take a flyer on like the YouTube TV trial or something because I've got to watch the game. And under under the current circumstances, I can't. I'm gonna tell you this right now because I have YouTube TV. And I was a cable subscriber for years. I love YouTube TV. I'm never going to go back to Spectrum. YouTube TV has its issues sometimes. And you have to be careful about being on Twitter when you're watching games on YouTube TV because inevitably the broadcast you're watching is going to be a player or two behind people who are watching on cable. I'm so happy that I don't have to pay Spectrum money anymore. And I'm getting everything that I would through Spectrum other than being 10 seconds ahead on live broadcast. Yeah. I thought, I thought you were going to go into YouTube TV promo when you said YouTube TV has, I thought you were going to say, you know, 75 premium channels. And I thought, I didn't know if they're like, are they sponsoring the show now or what? Um, but no, I, I, I got to figure something out though. I can't, I can't not watch it. And I, this is, this is the kind of game where like, I don't want to go to a bar or a restaurant and watch this game. I just like when I want, when I have to watch the game at home, like I just, I want to be in my off my home office with the doors shut and like, Nobody bother me. Just let me exist in here with my my legal pad and my computer, and I can watch the game. And you know, nobody nobody asks me questions. Just, just leave me alone. Let me watch the game. I have to be very selective about the company that I watch Texas games in because inevitably I'm going to care a lot more about what's happening on the television than most anybody else is. And it gets to a point where I won't call it rude necessarily because my wife or I will usually forewarn people like, hey. He's a big Texas fan, and I also get the excuse of having to watch it for work, which is a there you go yeah. to have. But at the same time, it becomes a distraction when nobody else cares, and you're trying to hear what happened 
and you're either having to turn the volume down or tell everybody else at the party to shut the hell up. And that doesn't usually go over well. So yeah, I'm like you, I normally like to uh, barricade myself in some place and have a select number of people who are going yeah. to be as into things as I am. The, the football delay doesn't impact me near as much as the basketball delay when I'm streaming a basketball game, because where I cheat myself is I'll have like the stats feed that's on the stat monitors on press row. I'll have the stats feed pulled up and that's instant. So I'll look at him like Brock Cunningham three pointer. I'm like, Oh, now, now I want to see how that gets set up. And like, oh, that's a nice back pick right there. So it, 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 it's, it's got its good points. It's, it's the gift and the curse. Well, the was I was talking with Kevin and BK on the phone yesterday and we were watching what was happening in the Rangers game. And it turned out to be a good moment for the Rangers. Thank goodness. I haven't been many of those in the last month, as you can attest to as a fellow Rangers fan, but I was watching on the game cast, watching Minnesota come back and tie yeah. that game up in the top of the eighth. And then saw that the Rangers had blown an opportunity bottom of the eighth or whatever. And I'm trying to get to the game when it gets to the bottom of the ninth to see if they can win it. And so I'm having to watch on GameCast because it's not coming up on my Spectrum app feed uh, through the television that I watch on because I guess you can't get Major League Baseball games through the Spectrum app. So I was having to watch it on the MLB.com feed and Kevin saw it first because he had the live Spectrum TV version. BK was watching yeah. on MLB TV, so he saw it second. And then I got it last watching just the, uh, the manual replays of things. So you did you feel left out? Yeah. I feel, I feel like you missed like you missed something. I wanted to hang up on those guys. I'm like, damn it, you guys just ruined it for me. Spoiler alert. I need you to keep that to yourself, especially Kevin. He's not a Rangers fan. Although to his credit, he was happy that the Rangers figured out a way to pull out a win. And he was very amused by the uh by the Garcia response when he hit that ball. My goodness, he crushed that ball too. But it it truly looking like the weight of the world coming off of his and hopefully the team's shoulders in the process. I'm a big fan of the bat flip. Like I, I just love seeing a good bat flip, like a good, a good, like middle finger of a bat flip. That's what I like about some of those home runs. Like I've, like Vlad, Vlad Jr. has a really good fu bat flip. I've come around on those, but that is only because, as Rangers fans, a lot of our initiation into the exaggerated bat flip was Joey Batista, yeah, in that playoff game. And I still resent him for that. But yeah, the bat, bat flip can be a pretty cool deal too. Like, I want to ask you this. this about, I'm an Astros fan. So I want to ask you this as a Rangers fan. You're a Rangers fan. Are you a no, Mavs I'm an, fan? I, I'm a Mavs fan. I don't, it's, you know, we don't have time to, there's not enough time left in this show or this broadcast week to get into that. But like, does it make how Rugnet Odor as a player fell off the face of the planet really quick? Does it make it easier to take knowing that, hey, at least there was that one time he punched Jose Batista in the face. I don't know if they I, – I, actually, I do know this. They shouldn't retire his number, Jeff, but they if, you, if you're going to give bronze statues out to every Dick and Joe out there now, you need to make a bronze statue of Rugnet Odor punching the crap out of Joey Bats. And he's lucky – I forget who was behind him. I forget if it was – Elvis or maybe Adrian Beltre who was behind him. He's lucky somebody was behind him to kind of catch him because otherwise he would have fallen to the ground. It wouldn't have been knocked straight out like what happened with Tim Anderson a month or so ago, but he would have gotten knocked to the ground because he was wobbly legged and falling backwards too. Yeah, it was it was a hellacious shot. And Rugnet Odor's career just it went it peaked. That was the peak. 
it was, it was downhill after that. He had a reputation coming out of the minors as getting into altercations at second base. And sure enough, it happened right there too, man. That, that is a guy that it looked like he was destined for something much greater than what he ultimately accomplished too. I know much to the chagrin of Astros fans who all loved him dearly. Uh, you guys were big Rugnetto door fans. No, I say that very sarcastically, obviously. Yeah. No, he's one of those guys that uh, almost in the blink of an eye is, is no longer relevant in the sport anymore. So from a from a likes to fight guy standpoint, he was like the Kenyon Martin of minor league baseball. Yeah, Kenyon Martin minus a foot and a couple inches. <laughs> like if, if you tell me like in, NBA likes to fight guy, like who embodies that? I'm like Kenyon Martin was the kind of dude that even if the the slightest infraction looked like something was about to pop off, like Kenyon Martin was just like, all right, who do I need to start swinging on and when? Just just tell me when to go. The people talk about like our tests and some of these other guys being loose cannons. Not you. Kenyon Martin was Kenyon Martin was wild back in the yeah. day. Anthony Mason was another one of those guys that it felt like he was always ready to to trade blows. <laughs> uh, the late Anthony Mason, by the way, rest in peace. He's dead. Boy, we better Google that. I hope I didn't just kill. I, I hope I didn't just kill Anthony Mason. You I'm, I'm, I'm like ninety nine percent sure Anthony Mason is no longer with us. All right. Time for a death check here. Yes, Anthony Mason passed away in 2015. I'm good. I'm good. I did not. I'm happy about it. I did not. I did not. I did not kill Anthony Mason. (laughs) But yes, sweet. Uh, Javi Baez, another one of those guys in baseball, likes to fight guy. Javi Baez had that rep going back into the minors too, and he was able to keep keep it somewhat calm during his Cubs days, but I feel like uh, his, his true colors have shown over time too. Hey, I asked, uh, I asked BK this as we're winding down. I, I don't know if you got any more sports you want to talk about, Trey, but when, when are we going to do, because I, you, myself, BK, Bucky, we can all be a part of this. When are we doing the 30 for 30 on Deuce Gate? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> when does Deuce Gate get a 30 for 30? Uh, I don't know. Next week, how long is it going to take to do that research and gather gather the relevant audio and video? I don't know, but that was uh, it's a hell of a week, and it made yeah. me realize that like Bucky Godbold's sniffer does not work at all. Tell tell the people about Deucegate who did not hear this on the morning show. It was a Monday when we were all at the Horn. It was a Monday, and we Craig and I were coming in to do our show, and I was like man, it smells like crap in here. Like, what is that smell? Keep in mind, Bucky had been in that studio for four hours before I got in there. And I'm like, man, I'm looking around like it's something with trash. So Craig and I go through our two, our whole two hour show. And the whole time I'm like, I don't know why it's like, did I step in dog crap? Like, no. And so I don't know what it is. Trey and BK come in to do their show. And uh, or was it you and Chad? I, I forget. I forget what our what the it was, show order it was. was me, yeah. And it gets found not long after y'all start your show. There's a dog poop in the corner of the studio. From as it turns out, where I guess we're doing the Deuce Gate Thirty for Thirty now, where where one of the weekend shows had brought a dog in. The dog had crapped in the studio, and it just got left there. Yeah, the outdoor zone guys. I have no problem yeah. those dudes under the bus. And I don't remember who it was. It might have been you or BK that asked the question, like, wait a minute. How did Jeff smell it? But Bucky was in here for four hours and 
was none the wiser. Like Bucky was working, his workout stuff was in that corner. So he's like on the ground, like doing his little ab roller or his, his, you know, resistance bands. And just this rancid deuce is just wafting across his nose the whole time. And he has no clue. I get it. Dogs are everybody's favorite animal. That that place got way too lax on dogs over the last couple of years that it was relevant. There were way too many incidents involving dogs defecating on the carpet, number one, number two, puking, and then people yeah. not picking it up, too. These dogs were roaming like it's Romania in 1986. It's like somebody needs to keep a leash on these dogs. It's like if, if a dog is in a public space, like a restaurant or a coffee shop or something, that's yeah. fine. If the policy allows you to bring your dog in, the dog needs to stay next to you. The dog doesn't just get to roam around like the office is its backyard. He's a, he's a, I just thought, you know, it, the only thing I'm thinking of is the Big Lebowski where uh, – you know, dude tells Walter, you brought a, you brought a Pomeranian bowling? You didn't bring it bowling. Not buying the not buying it a beer. It's not <laughs> taking your turn, dude. Yeah, that was that by the entry, that place, uh, dude, the carpet just it, like I walk in one, I'm I walk in one day and I'm like, it legit smells like urine in here. Like just like somebody just went number one all in the hall like it, it was it was bad this wasn't as much of a mystery but there was one time i walked in the door closer to the country studio and there was there was a deuce in the middle of the floor and I'm, i just look around i'm like all right let me see what dog's in here right now so i can go tell the owner that their dog number two all over the the floor in here in a common area and there was only one dog in there at the time, and it was a smaller number two, so smaller dog. So I saw exactly what the dog was, went and told the guy, like, hey, your dog just took crap in the office. Like, I know you're you're in here working hard, but can you please clean this up when you have a chance? And to his credit, cool. he cleaned it up, but it's like, should this be a thing to begin with? I don't think no. so. The only dog I have to worry about crap, potentially crapping in my office now is my own dog. And, you know, she's 14, so she she doesn't – she's way past the point of doing that indoors. Way past the point, but also maybe a little bit closer to the point too. Yeah, yeah. We're we, – you know, we had to put one dog down in January. And mm. this one, like, we're not seeing the signs yet, but you can you – know, the slowing process has started. What was so, – what was it that required you to put this dog down? I feel like there's a line that all dogs cross where you realize their quality of life is no longer any good and it's becoming a huge pain for you too. Uh, she had kept having vestibular strokes. Oh. Uh, and you know, the first two, she was fine after that. And then the third one, like she couldn't stand up. She couldn't walk. She couldn't like pick herself up to go to the bathroom. And the wife and I were like, like my wife and I have had this dog had this dog almost as long as we've been dating. Wow. Like we, we started dating right before Valentine's day. The dog was a Valentine's present. And so we'd had this dog forever. And we're like, look, this is going to suck more than maybe anything we've done has ever sucked, but it, it's got to happen. Like you can't, you can't let your dog look like that. So it was rough. Did you so both was, the dog was in or was, was that your responsibility? No, we, we both went, we both went and uh, I'm not saying, I mean, like I, I had the ugly cry, like in the vet's office and everything. Like it was, it was bad. Have you ever to do that? Trey? You ever to put a, put a dog down? No. Uh, we had a dog that died, gosh, four years ago. 
he had a growth that, that popped up pretty quickly on his head and he yeah. was suffering like small seizures. Oh, geez, man. Happened over like a three week span. So we took him in once and they couldn't really find anything. We're planning on doing an MRI. And then he like had a major seizure and died like at the bottom of our steps going upstairs. Oh, and my, awful. my wife was the only one home at the time. And I was actually driving towards work and she called and I'll never forget the tone in her voice. There was this panic tone. And I was like, what's going on right now? And she told me, and I immediately turned around, came back and he was dead by then. But it's death is weird for me being around somebody or something that I've loved for a long time. The same thing happened with my grandmother, which is strange. Like she had been sick for a while. So we kind of had a chance to mourn her while she was still alive. But when she died, I was just, I was mesmerized by the dead body, just like with this dog. And like this dog, like I was responsible for like picking him up and wrapping him up and getting to the vet to, to, uh, to be cremated. But like his eyes were, were partially open. I kept trying to close his eyes, but I kept getting nervous trying to close his eyes that he was going to like wake up and bite me. And like with my grandma, when she died as the, uh, the mortician came and was taking her out of my grandparents' house, like her eyes were kind of open too. And that bothered me. And I was like, try, it was like a Larry David moment. I swear. I was like trying to close her eyes. Her eyes would be all the way closed. And it wouldn't close like all the way to where she was going out the door and the eyes never closed. And I was just so annoyed that I couldn't get her eyes shut. Is that, so, uh, is that like some, some OCD kicking in or? Yeah. And I'm not really an OCD type of person either, but yeah. apparently when you're talking about a, a dead body and eyes remaining partially open, I feel like to be totally at peace, those eyes need to be completely shut. It's funny how Anthony Mason and dog turds got us down this road. <laughs> I know. It's also hilarious that Bucky has called me three times in the last hour and a half now. And we still have 10 minutes. By the way, I'm glad I remembered this because you and I talked about this briefly in pre-show what the hell are the Arizona Cardinals doing? So we know Arizona is trying pretty hard to tank this year. Obviously yeah. by the fact that Colt McCoy, thankfully for him, gets cut before the start of the season. They trade for Joshua Dobbs. They've also got uh, Clayton Toon. Clayton Toon, yeah, the former Houston quarterback on the roster. He is a rookie this year, so they're going to be rolling with one of those two guys as their starter. Trade away DeAndre Hopkins. They still have a couple of decent guys on offense especially, but they trade away Isaiah Simmons to the New New York Giants. Well, earlier today, apparently, it was announced who their captains are going to be this year. And Jonathan Gannon let reporters know that one of their captains is Kyler Murray, a guy that nobody expects to be on this roster after this year. What the hell are the Cardinals doing right now, dude? Like, like, is this a rib? I mean, it seems like Ashton... Kutcher is going to run out onto the field at the start of game one and say, ah, you've all been pumped. This is, I don't know. This is like the Cardinals reverting to for most of my life, what the Cardinals have been, which is the complete joke of a franchise Yeah, for the most part. Um, it, we were talking about this earlier too. And I'm, I'm interested to hear your theory that this just might be, I don't know, just a way to stick it to Kyler on his way out. Possibly. Like telling him, hey, you're you're about to be a captain on one of the worst teams the NFL has ever seen. And you're not yeah. going to play a single yeah. game either. You're going to choose to opt out of this season. 
even though you'll be healthy enough to play after week four because he's on the pup list right now. So after week four, you'll be able to play, but you're still going to choose not to. You're going to make a business decision, which generally speaking isn't surprising. It's definitely not surprising when you consider how, how Kyler Murray operates, but we're going to let you essentially sink yourself and maybe not make you untouchable, but make things make teams think twice before they consider signing you this next offseason. If you're if you're a GM and or you know you're a front office person and that's really gonna weigh your opinion uh, of Kyler Murray that well he had that C on his chest and he didn't play the whole year. Like if that's really gonna sway you one way or the other on Kyler Murray, then you probably don't need to have whatever job it is you have. Because let's face it, that that C on the chest means nothing nope. for this quarterback in this organization. No. It's a it's and... a fig, it's it's a I don't even know. It's 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 the weird it's one of the strangest damn things I've heard of in a while when it comes to issuing, you know, declaring who your captains are. Well, they're gonna have a very good chance of getting both the first and second picks in this upcoming draft, because as folks will remember, they have the Texans first round pick this year after the Texans moved up to get, who was it? Will Anderson. I forget who they drafted. Will, first. Uh, Will, it was a, yeah, the Will Anderson trade. Yeah. So yeah, they trade up to get Will Anderson and they give up their first round pick as a result. I, I don't think Houston is going to win that many more games than Arizona, but it seems pretty destined at this point that Arizona is going to be the worst team in football. Hey, Chris Boyd, CB does remind us, Chris Boyd and Jeff Swain are both Cardinals. So still got a couple of Longhorns out there. Love Chris Boyd. Jeff Swain underutilized as a Longhorn. I mean, he's earned an NFL paycheck for how many years now? The 2014 Texas offense, Trey, had three future NFL tight ends on that offense. One of them was playing quarterback. One of them was playing quarterback. But, yeah. Tyrone Beck, Jeff Swain and Tyrone Swoops, yeah. Is Beck still in the league? Beck, Beck is with the, Andrew Beck is a Houston Texan, so yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Tyrone Swoops, USFL? I don't know. I, I think Tyrone might have moved on from football at this point. That's probably for the best. It's not a not a bad not a bad little run though. I mean, he got a he got a nice little you know the eighteen wheeler package. It was a nice little gimmick and an otherwise forgettable season. He'll always have that Notre Dame game though, and the OU game the year before. And the OU game. All right, I'm so looking right now to see where Tyrone Swoops is. He was with the Washington football team's practice squad. Oh, wow, interesting. He was signed to the practice squad in December of 2020, played one game for the former Redskins that season, mm-hmm. re-signed with the team in 2021, but was released after failing to report to training camp. So Tyrone Swoops decided no football was better than being a part of a Dan Snyder organization long-term. I don't blame him. I don't think anybody else does either. I know. All right. uh, Final thoughts on the Rice game, what you heard from Steve Sarkeesian today. Uh, Anything else top of mind right now, Jeff? Business as usual is all you're going to get from the Longhorns this week. It's going to be, you know, pretty stale. I don't think you're going to get any kind of bulletin board material unless something happened when I left that I'm not aware of in, in these last few hours. So, but I don't think there is um, very, very much like this defensive line would have liked to see the secondary get tested more, but we won't know anything about that group, unfortunately, until after the Alabama game and the offense, most of their issues are fixable. Most of them. The one that really concerns me is 
the blitz pickup stuff. And between the Quinn, Sart, Kyle Flood, the offensive line, you got to you got to get that figured out. What's your prediction five days out? You're not going to be held to this. No, I mean, by the way, I will say, too, maybe the most concerning thing offensively is the short yardage stuff because Sark hurt all offseason on wanting to be better, you know, third and short, fourth and short, and they had to, including a fourth and short where they tried to run the ball and got stuffed. What, tell, tell me if I'm wrong here because I was watching from the stands and I don't remember seeing this and watching the replay yesterday. Did they have Keelan Robinson in for that carry? Or did they put somebody else in at that? No, it was, it was Jonathan Brooks. Jonathan Brooks, okay. Yeah, but the, the problem wasn't the back. The problem was A.D. Mitchell and uh, – I almost said Jeff Swam. Gunnar Helm released up the field, and the defender on their side, who was actually a backside defender, just crashed in and then made the tackle on the play. Mm. Uh, but Sart, Sart didn't seem very happy about that today. Um, so that stuff's got to get fixed. Uh, what are we – you said five – we're five days out now? Five days I, out. I, all I know is this. I'm not picking against the goat at home. I'm willing to, to, you know, I'll go out there and make some decisions, but I'm I'm not going to pick against Nick Saban in a home game. Okay. I've got Texas Texas by two touchdowns right now. I've, you're not the first person I've heard say that. I'm, I want to get into that later in the week. Maybe when I watch some Bama tape, I'll change my mind. Let's do that, because I think this Texas defense is going to have their way with the Alabama offense, and some of those little things that weren't going for the Longhorns on Saturday, I think they go for Texas. I think it's one of those perfect storm moments where Texas catches Bama at the right time and also figures themselves out a little bit more on offense in the process. And let's let's not forget, too, that game plan, that, that game that Sark called, We've all seen that stuff. It was about as bland as a Steve Sarkeesian call sheet could probably be for a game. That will not be the case on Saturday. That is a great point. He is Jeff Howe. We are happy to say he is a regular part of Texas Sports Unfiltered. That includes being a part of the three to five show a couple times a week. Also going to pop on with Bucky and BK from time to time. And who knows where else you'll see him throughout this channel throughout the days. Jeff, thank you as always. A pleasure, man. Trey, that was fun. Looking forward to uh, whenever we do it again. I don't know when the next time we'll do one of these, you and I, but looking forward to it. Soon enough. Thank you to all of our sponsors as well. That includes audiovisual consultations, Brain Vault, Covert, B Cave, Altstat Beer, Syntex tickets, 7-Eleven, Relax the Back, Woods, Last Stand Hats, and Top Gun Rentals and Lawn Equipment. If you did enjoy any of today's episodes, because this has been a stream that has gone on from 8 to 5, please click that thumbs up button. Also, make sure to subscribe if you've not already to the Texas Sports Unfiltered YouTube channel. For Jeff Howe and everybody else on today, I am Trey Elling. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow beginning at 8 a.m. In the meantime, hook them.